Welcome to the podcast of Wiser, Women in Surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. Welcome to the 10th and last episode of this season of Wiser. For this episode, Wiser founder Vivian Wang interviewed Dr. Maria Russell. Dr. Russell is an associate professor in the Division of Surgical Oncology at Emory. She talks to us about how she manages splitting her time between multiple hospitals, as well as the importance for women to ask for more in navigating their careers. We start by delving into her path to medicine and how she ultimately came upon choosing surgical oncology at Emory. This episode was edited and produced by Alex Speak. So I actually was born in Atlanta at DeKalb. Um, I did not get into medical school the first time I applied. Um, I had a really good time in college. <laughs> and so, so I actually worked at Duke for four years running clinical trials. And then um, went back to medical school at East Carolina University. And then came to Emory, as you said, for residency. And as far as I went into medicine, I've, I've known I was going to be a doctor since I was in about the first grade. My little brother was born with an atrial septal defect. Mm -hmm. And so he had open heart surgery um, at Eggleston oh. when, when he was about two. And, uh, and I have vivid memories of going to visit him uh, in that hospital. So I've known that I was going to do medicine since then. Surgery, actually, it's not something that I thought I would ever do. And so I did surgery. It was my second or third rotation in medical school, and I just fell in love. I was like that annoying medical student who would, who would stay to do. I remember I did a, um, they, the day before we got out for Thanksgiving break, there was a central line to do, and they told me if I wanted to stay that they'd let me do it. And the poor resident, true to his word, like it's 8 o'clock at night before we're leaving for holiday, and um, he let me put in the central line, and then another guy let me put in a chest tube, and I was sold. Yeah. That was it. Um, when I was a resident, I tried to enjoy every rotation that I was on, and I actually really liked almost everything. I, you know, toyed around with the idea of when I was an intern, I thought I was going to switch to ortho-onc, but then I thought I'd do vascular. I really thought I would do cardiothoracic, and then I didn't do surgical oncology until I was a third-year resident. I still wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I knew I was going to go into the transplant research lab because it was a good solid lab with basic science. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was out in the lab, my mom was diagnosed with colon cancer. And so for whatever reason, I just felt like maybe that's what I should be doing. Um, I also had really strong mentors in surgical oncology here. Dr. Staley mm -hmm. and Dr. Kuby were both here, and I kind of saw myself taking care of patients the way that they took care of them. So I actually never wanted to leave. Um, when I was a fourth-year resident, I knew I was going to do surgical oncology, and I tried to get Dr. Staley to hire me straight out of residency. <laughs> um, and true to Dr. Staley, you know, the way he watches out for people, he said, look, I'd, I'm happy to hire you when you're done, but um, you have to go away. Because if you don't go away and do a formal fellowship, then the only place you'll be good for is Emory, and nobody else will ever hire you, um, which was actually really great advice. And so he made me go away, but I had always hoped that he would let me return. 
and when I was actually out in in um, fellowship, I think I'd finished my first year, and I went online and bought some Emory um, sweatshirts and dressed <laughs> my kids in them and took a picture and sent it back to Dr. Staley, and I was like, okay, I'm ready to come back. <laughs> and um, and so we, um, both Dr. Cardone and I signed um, with Emory shortly after Christmas, I think, our second year in fellowship. And I think Emory's a phenomenal um, institution. I can't, couldn't ask for better partners than who I was coming back too. And then, you know, I'd always loved working at Grady. I always joke with residents that there's Grady residents and there's Emory residents. Yeah. And I was, you enjoy both, but I probably was more of a Grady resident. Yeah. And so that opportunity came about for me to work at Grady. And it was going to be about um, 30% Grady and 70% Midtown. And I was really excited to come back to work um, because I feel like Grady's where I grew up. It's kind of what made me a doctor. Yeah. And it's why I went into medicine, was to treat kind of the underprivileged population. Dr. Russell works at two hospitals, and she paints a picture of the logistics behind this balancing act, as well as its pros and cons. So I actually didn't anticipate how challenging it would be. I never really thought about it until I got here and realized, you know, I have great partners at both places, but I don't have any surgical oncology partners at, at Grady. And so it became a little difficult um, trying to build a practice at both places and then rounding at both places and who would cover my patients if I wanted to go out of town. So basically the way I set it up, I have, have to have support at both hospitals. So I have to have some administrative support. I have um, a, a patient care coordinator at Emory and I have a phenomenal PA at Grady um, who Cooper handles pretty much everything that I need at Grady. He's, he's my assistant. He's my partner. He's my um, mentor and mentee. <laughs> I mean, he basically serves everything. And then I have a fantastic nurse, nurse practitioner at Emory. So I kind of just have two parallel practices. And I do have, you know, I have clinic at Emory one day a week. And then I operate there. Um, one and a half days a week, and then I have clinic at Grady, actually um, two half days, one of which Cooper runs, and then I operate at Grady two days a week. So in, on, if you look at it on paper, I'm 60% Grady, 40% Emory now, but I will tell you that, you know, time-wise, it's a lot more. <laughs> it probably adds up to about 160%. I, I believe that <laughs> for sure. So, you know, I, and I tell my patients when I, when I operate on them, like, you know, I'll be rounding on you at weird hours. So, like, today I started out at Clifton Road for Grand Rounds, and then I came to Midtown to round, and then I came to Grady. I mean, I round at Grady sometimes at 8 o'clock at night, sometimes at 6 o'clock in the morning. And so my patients are never really sure when they're, um, mm-hmm. they're going to see me. But it's important for me that I see my patients every day. I round most weeks I round six days a week. Um, I try to take Sundays off just to have a one-day break. Sometimes I come in with Thursday, though. I guess I would say that the way that it's possible for me is we have phenomenal residents, and um, they are, you know, my eyes and ears when I can't be there. Um, I depend on them a lot, and I know it puts a lot of stress on them sometimes, And um, but I do appreciate all their work, and, you know, when I have... You know, they, they're just my junior partners, and that's what I tell them. Especially at Grady, the, the residents tend to be my junior partners. Without them, it would not be possible. Yeah. You just have to have a good 
soul searching and see if it's something that you can do. Are you going to be one of those people that's okay with somebody else seeing your patients, right? Are you going to be able to emotionally handle that your patient may be crashing at one hospital? I mean, I did have to call, I've had to call my partners at Grady while I was at Emory operating and say, can you take them to the operating room and I will come there as soon as I'm done. Are you going to be okay with that? And then you just have to figure out, you know, are you going to be that person that can be okay not seeing your patients every day? So you just have to be really honest with yourself. Um, I'm lucky because Grady and Emory Midtown are so close. I don't know that I would be okay working at, say, Grady and St. Joe's. Because I don't think I could do the, I mean, I don't think I could do the rounding at both places. Be true to yourself and what you are going to be comfortable with. She also provided some salient advice regarding contract negotiations for when residents eventually start their job search. It's really important that you put everything on paper. You know, I'm kind of, um, I take people at their word, and so I could have, I would have signed a contract saying that I was going to make X amount of money, and that would be it, and I'd be fine with that. And luckily, um, the partner that I signed with was very detail-oriented, and so everything was written down. So I will tell you that when you are looking to negotiate your contract, doesn't matter if it's at one hospital or six hospitals, you need to put everything you want in that contract. So not just salary, but like administrative support, nurse practitioners. Um, You need to put like you want two monitors. You need to put that you need a desk in your office. You need chairs. You need clinic how many days a week. And it's if you're going to work at multiple hospitals, you need that system in place for you both places. You need to know who's going to round for your patients when you're out of town, right? You can't be on call 365 days a year. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't work very well. So you have to have that all in writing. You have to have people that are going to help you because you can't do it by yourself. Dr. Russell and her husband have two daughters, and she shares insight into family planning and what it looked like for them. When I started residency, I didn't want children, actually. Um, I had just decided that I was just going to devote everything to my practice and then somewhere along the way we changed our minds and then the question became are we gonna just have one child are we gonna have more than one child and by that time I wanted more than one (laughs) my children are 13 months apart and you know it's funny because I can remember being I guess I was a medical student I went to a conference and heard a woman talk it was an AMS women's women in surgery something rather or women in medicine. And so she got asked a question like, so when do you have children? And she looked at all of us and she said, there's no good time to have children, right? Where do you fit in where you can take off a block of time to have your child recover from that and then dedicate, you know, the time it is to raise your children, right? There's no good time for that. And so what the advice she gave to me is the advice that I give to my residents when they ask me. I say, you figure out when it's the right time for you and your partner or just you and that's when you have your children because if you're waiting for the right time if you're waiting for enough money if you're waiting for you know your boss to tell you it's okay it's not going to happen now we have women that have babies all the time it's not really a big deal we expect that they're going to take time off and take care of themselves and take care of their newborn and so I think the change has been slow but it is happening. Oftentimes, the, the woman is the one that shoulders the burden of responsibility for raising the children. 
over time, the gender roles have changed some, right? So, you know, things are moving in the right direction. As a female surgeon, as a female doctor, you do have to have support. So whether that support is, you know, a husband, a partner, a nanny. We've had really fantastic nannies throughout uh, my entire career. I'm pretty lucky because our careers have both, neither one of us have really had to pause our careers for the other. He has always worked from home, and so it hasn't ever been an issue for me. So I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm the one that, like, if I showed up at the kids' school, they'd probably call the cops because they had no idea who I was. <laughs> He's taken on that role where he does a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that are traditional female roles. The only thing that I can't do is if I'm leaving work, I can't say that I'm leaving and not leave. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's the one rule in our house. Because <laughs> all the times I'll be like, I'm, I'm walking out the door. And like an hour later, I'm like, and now I'm really walking out the door. And he lost his mind about that. He's been very supportive of having the two children. I actually wanted more. Mm-hmm. And he said no. <laughs> um, he was tired of raising them on his own. <laughs> So we wanted to spend some time talking about the whole I look like a surgeon movement and the he for she and all those women movements that are being pretty popular nowadays in the public and really get back to the fact of do we really need this specifically in surgery for women because I made it to surgery residency you clearly made it and are successful in your career. I'm now at a residency that's 50% women that they work hard to do. I feel like I did fine here and I felt like I was supported. You clearly also did well and you're still quoted by some of the attendings here as one of the best residents that ever came through. And I don't think I personally felt slighted in any way in my residency in terms of the way I was treated um, or the respect that people gave me. To the point that I even questioned whether or not we should have something like Wiser. So are we just calling attention to the fact that historically we were limited and now we're trying to prove a point? Do we need the extra help? Would we be fine without it? Why is it important that we have this then? So I think to have that conversation, we need to talk about the obstacles that are maybe different that women face, whether we like it or not, and are they actually different from men? You know, I've always said, and I think most women surgeons don't want to be women surgeons. We just want to be surgeons. And the vast majority of us don't want anything handed to us because of our gender, right? If a person's not competent for the job and they get it, then people say, oh, she just got it because she was a woman, right? And then if she doesn't do a good job because she's not ready for that position or not doesn't have the the credentials for that position, then it does more to say, oh, she, she, sh- she just got it because she was a woman and she shouldn't have had it. I, did, I didn't have any female role models coming through. All of my mentors have always been men. And so, you know, for me, when I first started, I was kind of like, what's, what's the big deal, right? You can get through it just like I did. As a resident, I never, I never felt any type of bias whatsoever. I felt like I got treated just the same as my male um, counterparts. As an attending, I will tell you that, um, that there are subtle differences in the way women are treated from men, I think. Groups like the one that you have started is powerful for a couple reasons. One is because the data is the data, right? You know, women are paid less. Women are advanced more slowly 
And people say, oh, it's because they took time off from maternity leave. Well, I took three weeks off. You know, a lot of that's just things that people throw back. We don't, we haven't been particularly kind to other, other women in our profession. And I think something that men do is they mentor each other really well, right? They sometimes know the questions to ask, right? Like I told you earlier, I would have signed on at Emory for on a handshake. My partner, who is much more business savvy, would not have. Some type of training went into that, right? Like Mm -hmm. somebody has to tell you what to ask for, what things are important, what your salary should be, right? And women are embarrassed to ask that. We don't like to talk about money. We don't like to talk about advancement. We don't like to talk about perks. But once you start the conversation and you realize, hey, maybe I'm making less than somebody for no reason that I can fathom other than that I'm a female and that person's a male, then you start to be educated. We've always been taught we're lucky to get what we get. Don't take the first offer they give you because they'll always offer more because men don't take the first offer they're given. So I think women supporting women is really important for that. For me, it wasn't important to have female mentorship, but I will tell you for the younger generation, the medical students, I ask them, is it important for you to have a female mentor? Is it important for you to be able to talk to women? And it is incredibly important for them because they want to ask the question, how did you have children? You know, how did you figure out what you wanted to be? And it wasn't something that ever occurred to me to ask anyone. Mm -hmm. There's nobody to ask. Once you start climbing up the ladder, you should turn around and help the person behind you, right? For medical students and for the younger generation, it's important that, that, that they at least have one hand be a female. Like it or not, a lot of people are tend to be friends with the same sex, right? So, you know, it's not that Dr. X is bringing Dr. Y along because he's a male. He's bringing Dr. Y along because he knows him. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, hey, you should start to get this stuff in, into line. And women are less, we're not as good about talking about stuff like that. But I think if you have an advisor and then a mentor who can help you, you know, stay on the right track as far as where you should be year after year after year, then I think that's going to help help level the playing field a little bit. As far as national committees, it's a similar thing. We all tend to nominate our buddies for things, right? So if a if you have a, you know, being in surgery, a lot of the committees are run by men, so their buddies get nominated. This squeaky wheel often gets the grease, and women in general have been told a lot of times that they shouldn't be squeaky, right? We shouldn't ask for things. And so I think if you keep a running list of like who is available for a position and who is qualified for a position, and you're looking at a a sheet of paper, then it makes you make a more educated, more thoughtful decision about maybe who to nominate for a position. You know, one thing that you may not know that's going on at Emory is um, they, I'm on the mentorship committee. So what we're doing is we're trying to, when people come into Emory now, they're going to be given an advisor first. Okay. So the advisor is the person that says, this is where the obstacle course is. Okay. This is where the bathrooms are. This is how you get your parking at Grady. This is how you, you know, the, the logistics of the Emory landscape, right? And then there's going to be somebody else that is, assi- is assigned, much like the residents, right? So when you come in, you're assigned a mentor. You know, I, I'm an advisor, and I advise people. And it, when they start to differentiate, they want to go into vascular surgery, they want to go into plastic surgery, you know, I encourage them, why don't you talk to, you know, this other physician because they can help you along with your career. And if you still want to keep me as an advisor, 
then I'm happy to do it. That way they, you know, collect a couple different mentors because you don't just have to have one, right? You need mentorship for a lot of different areas. To me, a mentorship should be more of a organic relationship. Like you should have something that you get from that person. They should have some personal interest in, in your career, right? And so I think assigning somebody at first is great. The original mentor, I think, can actually help the new faculty branch out. My mentors, I have mentors outside surgical oncology, right, within the division of surgery who I depend on. I have mentors outside the division of surgery that I depend on and can just call and, and ask questions or get advice from. When you're junior faculty and you're meeting with somebody, don't be afraid to ask. I'm, you know, I'm interested in being on this committee. Do you know anyone on this committee who can help? And surgery is a really small world, so chances are the answer is yes. The other thing that we wanted to talk about specific to women in medicine was something called imposter syndrome. And across many professional fields, not just in medicine, women tend to perceive a lack of ability in tasks where they actually have demonstrated at least equal competence to men. And I think this is one of the reasons why we need things like WISER, why we need things to bring this to our awareness so that we can be better about this. Because we tend to fixate not only on what we believe are inadequacies, but we also tend to actually deprecate what our strengths are, even though we know at the back of our minds that we're good at it. We don't like talking about it, we don't like bringing it up, and we'll tend to very much overly humble ourselves in front of other people to the point that we are missing out on opportunities. I mean, I still have imposter syndrome. <laughs> Sometimes I'll do a liver resection and I'll look back at the CT scan on the post-op and I'll be like, wow, that looks really, really good. And it went perfect, the case went perfectly. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do. But yeah, I think we all suffer from imposter syndrome a, a little bit like that we shouldn't be where we are. We all struggle with that. It's funny because we, as an attending, you always laugh, you'll hear residents talking and you, you do a hernia with an intern and the male interns will be like, yeah, I did, I did hernia today, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, you bovied between my right angle. <laughs> Whereas, you know, your chief resident, uh, a female may do the majority of a Whipple, but she won't tell people she did a Whipple. She'll say, you know, she and the attending surgeon did it. It's also interesting because male surgery residents watch this they tend to refer to themselves as surgeons, as interns. Hey, I'm Dr. Smith, I'm your surgeon, or I'm a surgeon. I don't think I referred to myself as a surgeon until I was an attending. So after nine years of training, I finally felt comfortable saying I was a surgeon. One of the other things that women do is we always apologize. So women always say, oh, I'm sorry the labs aren't back yet, or I'm, I'm sorry the patient's not back in the operating room yet, or, you know, we apologize all the time. You start to blame yourself. Other people assume it's your fault, and it has nothing to do with you. When my female residents say to me, I'm sorry I woke you up. I'm sorry to bother you in the middle of the night. I'm like, do, do not apologize for when things are out of your control. You're not in control of everything, and, and we recognize that, so stop apologizing. Two, don't ever apologize for telling somebody about their patient, right? You're the one in the middle of the night at the patient's bedside. Quit apologizing. You never are bothering us if you're calling us about our patients. I'm all for people treating each other with respect. I think that that is mandatory. But in a situation that we deal with in life and death, if I forget to say please 
put the patient on massive transfusion <laughs> protocol, I should not be written up for forgetting to say please right. or for saying it in a strong, in control voice, right? Because none of our male colleagues would ever be. You should be, as a medical student, you should be trying to be helpful. But you have to stop apologizing, right? You haven't done anything wrong. You're paying, actually, as a medical student to be there, yes. right? You're the only one that's paying, <laughs> paying good money to be in the right. operating room. So you should be nice. You should be helpful. You should recognize that the nurse knows 100,000 times more than you right. at that point, you know, even in your desert junior resident. Mm-hmm. Heck, even sometimes as an attending, yeah. right? But we have to stop apologizing for things that are out of our control. Have you read the Lean In book, or you've heard about it by Sheryl Sandberg? I read part of it. Sheryl Sandberg, she's the CEO of Facebook, who published her book, Lean In, in March 2013, encouraging women in the professional workforce to take opportunities to advance their careers by doing things such as sitting at the table, aka acknowledging that you are capable and you deserve a seat at the table with the men, and then leaning in, meaning instead of waiting for people to give you the opportunities and holding back for various reasons because of imposter syndrome or or what else, instead of worrying about that, to just go after the opportunities. What do you think about that philosophy? Yeah, I think the problem is is women don't even know the table exists. I think for my first five years of being faculty, I didn't know, like, you have to ask to be on committees, right? So the other assumption that women make a lot of times is, is that their male counterparts are being asked to do things. Oh, you're being asked to join. Oh, they they like him better. He's being asked to join all these committees. When in reality, um, maybe nobody appointed him for for those committees. Maybe he went to somebody and said, I want to be on, you know, your promotions committee. Or I want to be on the residency review committee. So one thing we also do in our minds is we put ourselves down, right? You You see a man getting put on this committee or that committee, you think, oh, I'm not as good as him. Oh, they don't like me. Oh, somebody else is advocating for him, which is sometimes true, but sometimes it's just because the guy went up and asked. Mm-hmm. And when you ask, they let you on the committee too. We shouldn't be shy about promoting ourselves and our female colleagues. You know, for Grand Rounds, I'm always thrilled to be able to announce that my female colleagues have some, you know, achievement. The men aren't shy about submitting their stuff, you know, and the women oftentimes forget or they don't think it's important. Right. or they don't want to be boastful. But you worked hard for that grant. You worked hard for the position on the editorial board. You worked hard, you know, to be head of that committee. You should let people know. Dr. Russell talked about things she's passionate about outside of the OR, including her research. I'm super excited about some research that I have. With the help of one of my partners, I've set up a safety net collaboration around the United States. So we're looking at um, various cancers in the safety net population. I'm also collaborating with some people from Rollins Health to look at the same issues in the state of Georgia. She also gave us a glimpse into some of her hobbies. I'm a huge sports fan, so I love to be outdoors playing sports, whether it be, you know, playing soccer with the residents, playing soccer with my kids, playing pickup basketball with my kids, running, working out, anything outside I love to be doing. We're huge Atlanta United fans now. I love to cook. It's my, it's one of my um, favorite things to do. Unfortunately, I don't ever do it. So on the weekends, that's my time when I get to cook, which makes me really happy. My husband and I have remodeled houses 
We have gutted, I think, three houses. I've sanded hardwoods, I've gutted kitchens, I've hung kitchen cabinets, I have tiled, I've redone bathrooms. <laughs> These are your, your home? Yeah, yeah, so the first house we bought, we remodeled and and he got transferred and we had to move and so it was supposed to go on sale the next day we had we didn't get the kitchen because we couldn't afford it so we remodeled sanded all the hardwoods we did a lot of work in the kitchen retiled pulled off the formica retiled the oh, wow. countertop finished at like four o'clock in the morning the day that the the house went on sale he doesn't let me do the sawing anymore because when I was when I was a fourth year medical student, I was sawing because we were we yeah. were again we had gutted our kitchen in medical school, and we were, I was sawing with a wet saw and I almost cut my fingers off. He was like, "You're done. Yeah. No more sawing. Yeah. You're allowed to do anything else you want. No more sawing." Dr. Russell leaves us with some parting wisdom on what it means to choose a career in surgery, and I think it's a powerful note to end this season of Wiser on. One of the interns when I was a medical student told people if they could find something else that could make them happy other than surgery, they would recommend um, going into that field. I think you should do what makes you happy, and it's never too late. If you're not happy what, doing what you're doing, then you, have, you should make a change, right? So if you get to halfway through your residency and you decide you don't want to do that, you should change because hopefully our lives are all long enough that we should... Um, enjoy what we're doing. I feel like I don't have to go to work every day because I really truly love what I do. It's not an easy path, but it is well worth it. I wouldn't do anything else. Surgeons have the best jobs. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lot of surgeons. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time. Thanks for asking me. Day. I appreciate it. Was a lot it. of fun, and we really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for joining us for today's Wiser Podcast. We look forward to sharing more great interviews with you next season. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast, or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support, and we hope to hear from you soon.